over the last three weeks, um, we as a church, Greenbelt Baptist Church, have been entirely blessed and overjoyed to worship again with Aletheia College Park, and it's always a blessing uh, to gather with you all and um, uh, sing together and uh, encourage one another, and we love you all dearly as a church. We pray for you uh, almost, it seems, every other week, and it's always a joy to partner with you. And this morning we get to do that, uh, especially as um, our good friend and brother Bob Kuligowski is coming to preach. He's an elder candidate at Aletheia Church, and he will be opening up for us this morning, uh, uh, 3rd John. Let's pray for him. Thanks, Steve. And sorry if I've created a little bit of confusion by being here, because I guess there was a bit of a conversation between Steve and my pastor, Pastor Rob, before the service. Steve looked a little concerned. He said, Pastor Rob, I don't understand. Who is this guy? I thought you, you know, I asked you to make sure we had a polished speaker for Sunday. And Rob said, oh, brother, I'm so sorry. I misread your text. I thought you said you want a Polish speaker. <laughs> so you got me. <laughs> anyway. Thank you for the privilege of bringing God's word to you this morning. Let's open your Bibles, if you will, to 3 John. This is God's word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your holy word. This is a letter written from one man to another nearly 2,000 years ago, thousands of miles from here, that you chose to preserve for us. It is a word that is breathed by you. It is a word that is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Father God, I pray you would do these things this morning, Lord. I can sow all the seed I want. Lord, you are the one who prepares the soil. You are the one who makes things grow, Father. I got pray for your work of grace in us this morning as we go through Third John together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me open up with a question. How many of you have kids? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you were kids at one point? Raise your hand. Good. Imagine this scenario, either from the parent's side or the child's side. 
Child A does something, requires an apology to child B or to somebody else. The parent tries to get child A to give a sincere, heartfelt apology to the offended party. How does it usually turn out? Yeah, I usually didn't mean it either, and it definitely sounded like I didn't mean it. So what does this have to do with 3 John? Stay tuned. So getting into 3 John, whenever I'm unpacking a passage of scripture, I like to start out by f- figuring out who the major players are, and then finding out how they relate to each other. Those of you who've sat through my 3 John Bible study workshop know what I'm talking about. If we can do these two steps well on the way to understanding the main point of a passage. So let's get started. Who wrote this letter? First important question. Paul or Peter, when they wrote letters, made it easy for this because they put their name right at the beginning. In this case, we get no help in that quarter. We just get the writer identifying himself as quote-unquote the elder. Most of the early church believe this is John the Apostle, and most of the scholars do too, and those guys have bigger degrees than mine, so I'm inclined to believe that, to agree with them. But another line of evidence that doesn't require a theological degree is the vocabulary of, of the letter itself. The words truth... Testimony, love appear quite liberally in John's gospel, and they show up a lot here too, and that's another line of evidence that John the Apostle is indeed the author. Okay, one down, one to go. Who's who's it written to? Who's this Gaius person? In the New Testament, there are a couple of other people who are named Gaius who are referred to, but they could be different people because they're listed in different locations, and we're really not told a whole lot about them, so... Larger context of scripture isn't really going to help us much here. But we do know a few things about guys from the text. We know that John thought really highly of him and of his faith, because notice how John greets Gaius in verses 2 through 4. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this than my, hear, to hear my children are walking in the truth. We also know about guys that he was caring for some other people whom John calls brothers, and we see this in verses 5 and 6. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So who are these brothers? The Greek word Adelphos can mean blood brothers, but it's also used in the New Testament to refer to fellow Christians. And I'd argue that they are fellow Christians, and also that they're traveling ministers of the gospel who were sent by John. And as far as my reasoning goes, I think, first of all, they're directly associated with John because they're the first people he talks about in this letter, after giving the greeting, which we just saw in verses 5 and 6. And verse 3, John says he was in direct contact with them. He says, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. It's a pretty clear association. On top of that, I'd also argue that they're part of the us that John refers to in verse 10 when he talks about diatrophies causing trouble. So associated with John for traveling part, John talks about journey in verse, seven, in verse 6, and then he talks about them going out in verse 7, where it says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. So in addition, while they're on the road, we can see that Gaius and some other believers are taking care of them. Because in verse 7, he says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing, from the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles in verse 7, some tra- isn't, that isn't the word used in every translation, but it makes it sound like they accepted help only from Jews. But the Greek um, ethnos is pretty ambiguous. The Jews did are used to refer to Gentiles, but all it means is what it sounds like, an ethnic group. So in any case, we have these, these folks who are doing something similar to what we saw in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the 12, 
And he gave them instructions to not take anything along with them, that they were supposed to depend on worthy people to take care of them while they're out preaching. So I think we've got a good case here. These brothers are traveling preachers whom John was sending out. And there's a couple other things we learn about these brothers from the passage. One is that in verse 6, we see that they were really impressed with how well guys took care of them because um, John again wrote in verses 5 and 6, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So John didn't just, you know, apparently, you know, offer him whatever, or sorry, guys didn't just apparently offer him, you know, whatever is in the fridge and a comfy chair. I mean, he really went out of his way to take care of them. But on the flip side of it, these guys also have some opposition from some dude named Diotrephes. So we see in verses 9 and 10, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So what do we know about Diotrephes? He didn't welcome the traveling ministers like Gaius did and even opposed people like Gaius who were helping these, these brothers. And Diotrephes must have been some kind of leader in the church because he, had, he was putting people out, so he had to get the authority to kick people out from somewhere. And he also rejected John's authority. And if these traveling preachers were from John, then they could see why Diotrephes didn't want anything to do with them. Now, I could spend a lot of time speculating additional details. Again, those of you who have been to the workshop know I have a pretty good idea of, of the entire backstory. But let's focus on the essentials. John's sending out these traveling ministers to the gospel, and Gaius is taking care of them as they, they come to be with him. And there's some church leader named Diotrephes who is opposed to this entire arrangement. So we got our cast of characters, and we've got some idea of how they relate to each other. So far, so good. I mean, it's a short book. It shouldn't take too long. So what do we do with this? Again, this is a personal letter written almost 2,000 years ago. Well, John says what he wants guys to do in a very general sense, beginning verse 11, is, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. That's the principle that underlies John's instructions to Gaius. And what that looks like for him is for guys to keep caring for those traveling ministers, even though there's at least one prominent church leader who's opposed to it. John is very specific in verse 7. You will do well to send them, the brothers, on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Sounds pretty simple. But let's keep some things in mind. Gaius was taking complete strangers into his home and taking care of them. And he only had their word to go on and maybe John's word to go on. I mean, John couldn't text or call Gaius beforehand, say, you know, got some folks coming. They just showed up at Gaius' door unannounced, maybe with a short letter from John saying he sent him, but that's it. And John understands this, and even in verse 5, he refers to them as strangers. And if we can speculate a little bit from verse 12, as Demetrius, who gets mentioned, may very well be one of these traveling ministers, one of these brothers, and he's carrying this letter from John to vouch for him. Now, I think you could agree with me, it's not terribly comfortable to let somebody into your own home unless you either know that person or at least you know somebody who can vouch for them. And yet that's exactly what Gaius is doing here. And also, we don't know how well, we don't really know anything about Gaius. We don't know if the guy was rich. We don't know if he you know, was, was barely eking out a living. We don't know anything about that. But we know that you know, hosting and feeding people in your home isn't cheap, especially the feeding part. 
as someone who was just hosting, you know, seven family members under my roof, you know, I get that. You know, Gaius was making, I love them, but I mean, you know, it, it costs money. And Gaius was making financial sacrifices with no expectation of ever being paid back for this. And as we read again, we see that there were people in the church who were opposed to what Gaius was doing. Um, we, as some of them, like Demetrius, were leaders in the church. Now, we don't know if Gaius was in Demetrius's church per se, so we don't know if Demetrius had the authority to put Gaius out. But we do know it's a lot more discouraging when fellow Christians don't understand what we're doing for the kingdom. I mean, if a non-Christian f- friend or family member says you know, that, we're cre- that we're being stupid to follow God's calling on our lives, they're supposed to do that. They don't believe. It may, you know, it's, it's the rational response. If God really isn't there, then the rational response is you shouldn't be doing all these things for him. But when fellow Christians do it, it's another thing entirely. And some of you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about, of well-meaning Christians who, dis- are, you know, who discourage us from, calling, from doing what God's calling us to do because it's dangerous or because it's uncomfortable. So my point in going into all this is that Gaius, you know, Gaius was paying a price for doing good. It wasn't easy and it wasn't convenient. We don't know how much of a price it was because we, can't, we don't know his exact situation. But I think we know enough there. This was something that was costing him something. So, in bringing down this imitating evil to, to good and bring it to a, 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 the application, I'd be more specific and say we need to respond to God's work in reaching the world with the gospel, even when it's hard and even when it costs us something. And there you got it. We look through the text, come up with the main point, point to what it means for us to hear now. Ten minutes. Time to close in prayer. No. I think if I stopped here and let you all go home early, I'd do of all of us a disservice. Because I think a lot of us would leave here feeling guilty about not serving God more and resolving to bite the bullet and do more. It would be about guilt. But John doesn't use guilt anywhere in this letter. He gives guys a vision for the benefit of serving God. Look at verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So John's saying supporting people who are doing God's work is participating in what they're doing. For us who aren't called to vocational ministry, sharing the resources God's given us with those who do his work full-time is participating with them in their work. It's not just writing a check. It's not just saying an email. It's an integral part of what God does uses to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. And this echoes what Pastor Mike mentioned last week during his sermon, that we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. So that's one heart motivation. Another is in verse 11, where John says, whoever does good is from God. That doing good in all its forms is an integral part of who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are built to do good. It is why we are here. It is the ultimate fulfillment of our purpose. Doing good isn't something we earn to do to earn our standing before God. It's not something we do to show that we belong in his kingdom. It is who we are. Fallen men and women, yes. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit to do good is an expression of who we are. When we do good, we show the world the God who we belong to. And both of these, being something bigger than ourselves and truly expressing who we are in Christ are better motivations than guilt. We want to be part of God's work of calling men and women to salvation. We want to live consistently with who we are in Christ. But for most of us, at least for me, these things don't always, motiv- don't always motivate us to actually serve and to give with 
joy. I love the last song that we closed with, Amazing Love. It's my joy to honor you. And for me, it's hard to sing that because a lot of times it's not. Why? Why is it so hard to serve God sacrificially when it's so obvious that he not only commands us to do it, but he promises that it leads to joy? In other words, why do we sometimes serve God with all the insincerity of the apology from child A? See, there's a connection. I honestly believe it's because we see the rewards of serving God as less than the very immediate and tangible rewards surrounding us. Reading my Bible isn't as fun or distracting as watching football, especially when Penn State wins their bowl game. I went there. Telling someone the truth in love is harder than having a shallow but but uncomplicated relationship. Giving sacrificially and trusting God to provide feels a lot less secure than saving enough to do what I want when I retire. Let's face it, we choose what we do because we think it offers something better than the other alternatives. Or sometimes we choose it because it offers something less bad than the other options. We might not think through that on a conscious level, but that's usually how we make our big choices and our small ones. And sometimes those choices work out well for us. I mean, last night, I believed that having something coherent to say to you this morning would be more rewarding than watching Penn State beat Washington in the, ro- in the Cotton Bowl. And I chose accordingly. So hopefully it's coherent. But if we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that serving God will give us real joy, the only thing left to motivate us is guilt. If I don't read my Bible today, or if I don't put enough in the offering plate, or if I say no to some opportunity to serve, I'm a bad Christian. So we're trapped between two negative consequences. We can disobey God and feel guilty, or we can obey him and feel miserable. This is exciting. Can you guys relate to this? You don't need to put your hand up. Just nod or wink. So how do we get away from using guilt to motivate us to sacrifice for the kingdom? Again, how do we go from just taking the message of 3 John and resolving to tighten our belts and try harder this week? In the interest of of exegetical precision, I realize this isn't the main point of 3 John. But if we stop with this give more and do more and we don't deal with our hearts, this time in the word isn't going to make a difference. I said, we're just going to go back to the same routine of trying to guilt our way forward in the kingdom. Now, we saw earlier, John already gave us some hints of the tantalizing possibilities, the promise of of, of participating in God's redemptive work, the promise of, of being who we were really intended to be, who we were created to be by doing good. Jesus really lays it out in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 29. If you could turn there in your Bibles, um, feel free to. I'll read it so you don't need to. But while you're turning, let me set up the background. I'll start reading in verse 16. And this is a, a very familiar story, I'm sure. And behold, a man came to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, obey the, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Uh-huh. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. 
When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this is where we usually leave off with the story. Being rich gets in the way of following God, so we need to give up everything and follow Jesus. If we're honest, most of the time when we read this or we hear this, we are totally fixated on the misery of the rich young ruler, and we feel his pain. Jesus' statement, treasures in heaven, and a statement with God, things are possible, doesn't even move the needle. All we feel is, great, to follow Jesus with God be miserable. I mean, does this not feel like a suck it up moment? I'm serious. Is this not the way that we respond when we see this passage? Or are all of you that much more spiritual than I am? Peter even says it. Look what he says in verse 27. This is what we're all thinking right now. Peter says in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? This is Peter, and Peter sets the bar pretty high for being impulsive. But even if this, this takes guts, I mean, or since Peter's a Jew, I should say this takes chutzpah. Who asks the Son of God to his face, am I going to get something in return for all I've done for you? And Jesus already called Peter Satan a couple of chapters ago, so Jesus has already set the bar pretty high himself, so you know what's coming. I mean, this is going to be good, right? Let's get the popcorn, sit back, turn on the projector. Here we go, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Wow. Jesus just put Peter in his place, huh? Wait, what? Where's the wrath? Where's the brimstone? Peter gets called Satan for telling Jesus not to die a horrible death on the cross, but this gets him a free pass? What's going on? I think Jesus responded this way because he understood, and he understands everything correctly, mind you, that Peter's question wasn't one of entitlement, but one of desperation. He's saying, Jesus, following you has cost us everything. Did we make a mistake? Will we have given up everything and be on the outside looking in? When it's all said and done. And Jesus tells Peter that it is worth it. Now, I don't know exactly what this hundredfold stuff looks like. There's a lot of people out there who shall remain nameless who go out there saying it means that God will give you a lot of money in return for whatever money you give their ministry. And I know that's not what it means. And I think the apostles are exhibit A that doesn't mean that. I don't recall any writings of church fathers of these guys wondering what to do with all their money. Who gave up more than they did? But I think anybody who makes real sacrifices for the kingdom asks Peter's question a lot. Is it worth it? Is it worth the dreams I gave up? Is it worth the financial insecurity? Is it worth being misunderstood by other Christians? Is it worth having people I care about think I'm a loser because I'm wasting my talent by doing ministry? Meanwhile, the rest of us aren't making real sacrifices to the kingdom because in our heart of hearts, we don't really think it's worth it. All we can see is the guilt if we disobey God on the one side and the misery we get we, we, if we give things up to obey him on the other. 
So we cut our losses, we try to numb the guilt, and we hope for the best we meet Jesus face to face one day. But that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to be so captured by his promises to us that we understand that any sacrifice is worth it. Remember the parables, the pearl of great price, and the parable of the field in Matthew 13, 44 through 46? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes out and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all he had and bought it. Jim Elliot famously said, He is no fool who gives we cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do we really understand we don't get to keep anything that we have right now and that God offers us something of infinitely more value? Now, you've all heard this before, I'm sure. And you know this sounds great in theory. But we don't really live like this. When we're honest with ourselves, being safe and comfortable and loved and understood right now has a lot of appeal. How do we get to the point of really believing that what God offers us is better than what the world offers us now? And the answer is really simple. We can't. Not by ourselves, anyway. God must do this in us, or it doesn't happen at all. But if we believe that salvation is something that God did entirely on his own, we also need to believe that only God can change our hearts toward him and give us the ability to truly value what he values. And we need to pray like we believe he has to do it instead of us trying to do it on our own with more Bible study and more encouragement and more accountability. I mean, we do need these things after that foundation of prayer. We need, by God's grace and with the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be actively rooting out those things in our lives that turn our hearts away from him. I've memorized 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. I'm not going to recite it here, but read it at home. Because it's a great reminder of what really matters. And I meditate on it a couple days a week, a couple, days, a couple times a day at work, so I don't start thinking that my purpose at work is to make a name for myself. I mean, it starts out, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And that puts my life in perspective real fast. It also encourages me to read about missionaries and to read newsletters from ministers of the gospel who my wife and I support financially. They remind me that God really is at work and that the sacrifices are worth it. Now, I'm not coming to you as someone who's figured all this stuff out. You can ask my wife. I still choose comfort and approval over obeying God. A lot. But I also know that I need to change and that only God can make that happen. So let's tie it all together. We spent the last half hour or so looking at the letter John the Apostle wrote to a believer named Gaius. His purpose was to encourage Gaius to continue to show hospitality to traveling ministers that John was sending out. Gaius needed this encouragement because there were at least one leader in the church, Diotrephes, who was strongly opposed to this. And John doesn't say it, but Gaius might have also needed encouragement because hosting all these strangers was a real risk that cost him something. And then verse 11, John gives us this general principle of imitating good instead of evil. For Gaius, this meant continuing to be generous toward God and toward these ministers of the gospel despite the cost. And we can take a similar application away of generously supporting and encouraging those who minister God's word here and everywhere with whatever God provides us to do it with. But please, please, please don't go home and start writing checks or for the young and start setting up automatic transfers out of guilt. John didn't use guilt to motivate Gaius. 
and we shouldn't be motivated by it either. Again, guilt gets child A to say the right things, but it's just checking off a box. But please also don't go home and do nothing because you're torn between feeling guilty if you don't do it and feeling miserable if you do. Instead, I urge you, and I urge me as well, please go home and count the cost as Jesus himself commanded, but weigh that cost against everything that God has already done for us and promises to do for us. Ask God to give you the ability to see how valuable your salvation is and his promises really are, to be able to see there is something infinitely weighty on the other side of that scale. Ask God to give you the grace to obey 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one of us must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Ask God to give you the grace not to be child A as you give and serve, but to do it out of increasing joy in him. And then take whatever step of faith God would have you take, trusting that's worth any cost. And one last thing. Some of you may be wondering, what exactly has God done for us? This may all be new to you. 32nd version, every one of us has disobeyed the God of the universe who gave us life. And God has stated clearly that because of our disobedience, we deserve to be separated from him for all eternity in a place of torment called hell. But God himself gave us a way out by sacrificing his only son, Jesus Christ, on a cross a death more miserable than we could imagine, to pay for what we did and that we'll be forgiven of our sin if we turn for our sin and trust him. If you've got any questions about this, you know, Pastor Mike, Pastor Steve, Pastor Rob, or I'd be glad to talk to you after the service. So in closing, remember the passage from Hebrews that we read earlier in the service. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great, so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against yourself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Lord God, it's sobering. At least it's sobering for me to be faced with the coldness of my own heart in response to your unbelievable grace toward me. And Lord, I don't think I'm alone in here. But Father, I also know we are helpless to change that on our own. We can't trick ourselves into it. We can't whip ourselves up into emotional fervor. We can't read enough books. We can't talk to enough people. God, it's the work you have to do. I pray, God, you would have mercy on us, that you would give us hearts that can see how awesome you are, that can see the infinite worth of what you have done for us in Christ, the infinite worth of the promise of glory with you in eternity, Lord. I pray as the hymn goes, Lord, that the things of this world would grow more and more dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, please do this work because, again, we cannot do it on our own. And thank you, Lord, for your promise that you began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.